the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Some weeks are easier than others. Yeah, and this is one of those easy ones. You know, when somebody just separates him or herself from the pack, you know, rises above a lot of otherwise worthy candidates. And now, it's time for The Jerk of the Week, starring John Steigerwald. Yeah, she's been the number one story on cable news all over social media, too. Fanny or Fanny, Fanny, Fanny Willis has become a household word. She thought she was going to make a name for herself by uh, sending a former president of the United States to prison, and it was going pretty well for her until it began to look like she put her main squeeze in charge of the case and then paid him $650,000, even though he had no experience in RICO cases, which is what this uh, one is or was, and, and he was mostly an ambulance chaser. And then she went on several trips to some really nice places with the guy and spent lots of money. Then yesterday, Fonny showed up in court, apparently wearing her dress backwards for some reason. That was on the Internet today. Don't ask me. I don't know why, but she did. And then she showed no patience with the question she was being asked. And then she said there's no real record of where the money came from for those trips that she and her squeeze took because she paid cash, and she said, you know, she reimbursed her boyfriend with cash for the money that they spent on their trips. And then she said having $10,000 in cash laying around your house is a black thing. Who knew? But here's the best part and what put her over the top. This is funny in an interview when she was running for district attorney of Fulton County. Because they deserve a DA that won't have sex with his employees. Because they deserve a DA that won't put money in their own pocket when it should go to benefit children. Because we deserve better. Yeah, right. That's exactly what uh, she did. And that's exactly why Fanny Willis is this week's AM 1250 The Answer Jerk of the Week. And when we come back, George Soros uh, may be buying a radio station near you very soon. He's about to buy, or maybe has already bought, Odyssey, which includes 220 stations, and that includes four here in Pittsburgh, including the one that begins with a K. We'll have a media expert, Jeff McCall, here to talk about what could go wrong there. And in our second half hour, the Biden administration is still planning on a ban of gas-powered cars, probably in your lifetime. And it's going to be a major issue in the campaign. Stick around. Now, back in September, uh, I'm sorry, in November, actually, George Soros tried to uh, plant one of his district attorneys here in Allegheny County. But for once, the voters around here were smart and didn't vote for the Democrat. They had voted for the Republican, who was actually the incumbent district attorney, but had just changed from Democrat to Republican. Anyway, now uh, George is about to make his presence known on the radio. He's buying Odyssey. 
That's a group of 220 radio stations, including four here in Pittsburgh. And as I mentioned a minute ago, that includes the one that starts with a K. Jeffrey McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University and media critic for The Hill, a regular guest here. Good to have him back. Thanks for coming on, Jeff, again. Uh, you're welcome. So, Great uh, to be with you. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I don't think George is buying a bankrupt radio group because he thinks it's a good investment. What do you think? Well, it's certainly not a good investment because Odyssey – uh, is about $1.9 billion in debt. And the group that Soros is working with is buying up that debt uh, to the tune of about $400 million. So they would be one of the biggest shareholders uh, when the bankruptcy settlements start to come down. And it's just very hard to imagine that Soros wouldn't try to put his ideological stamp on these 220 stations, which are planted all across the country. And some of them actually are pretty good radio stations, I must say. So, I mean, the, 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 it'll be a shock, I'm sure, to a lot of the people who are running these really decent stations uh, when the Soros kind of uh, fingerprints get put on there. And again, now, it, you know, it's possible he's buying these stations and is going to let them be continue to be independently operated and leave the local executives to kind of manage, you know, based on what they think is good radio for their audiences. But given his long history of wanting to be involved in all kinds of progressive activities causes, I don't think he's probably looking at this as an investment or an act of charity. So I think people should probably be ready that Odyssey stations around the country are probably at some point, and it might take a while to get it done, but they will feel the ideological drift of uh, the George Soros mentality. Yeah, what kind of mischief could could he do? The owner of 220 radio stations could you actually, you know, call up program directors and say fire all your conservative hosts and I want liberal hosts, or would it be more subtle than that? Do you think? Well, I think it'd have to be more subtle than that because I mean it'd be very hard to like just you know do a 180 for 220 radio stations because Odyssey stations are in a wide range of formats. And, you know, the ones that are just more musically driven or whatever are probably not going to be that uh, great a target, uh, you know, for a Soros progressive ideology. I mean, if you're doing popular music or rhythm and blues or any number of sorts of things, it's probably going to be hard. But I think probably we and again, this is just a guess, but I think we'll probably mostly see his influence on the news talk stations that Odyssey owns at various markets around the country. Because I think that's probably where they figure they can make the most difference from an ideological standpoint. So it'll be interesting to see. And again, my sense is that George himself isn't going to be sitting here at the control board, you know, trying to run a radio station. But I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that, you know, the, the, the financial wheeling and dealing he does in this day and age clearly has a purpose. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, you're not buying up Odyssey debt with the idea that it's a great business investment, because uh, it, it's not. The Odyssey stations, some, some of them are profitable, but many of them are not. And honestly, I think, you know, the, the big corporation there got too far out ahead of itself and got too many properties, and it was too hard to manage them. And the radio industry, uh, I, I, you know, I really appreciate the radio industry, and it does a lot of great good for the nation. But financially, it's not been a great financial model for the last several years for a lot of different reasons. And part of that is just mismanagement in certain corners of the radio spectrum. But I think Soros is looking 
to uh, expand his influence and be con- continue to be a player in the media world. Uh, and you know, he he he's an influential person. I mean, he he owns a lot of stuff. Uh, he funds political campaigns. Uh, your your listeners probably well know he's a committed progressive, and he donates to places like Move On. And uh, his his own foundation is called the Open Society Foundation, uh, and it's called the Open Society Foundation for a reason. So I think uh, clearly he wants to expand his footprint and uh, create as much ideological movement as he can. Yeah, um, his a lot of the stations, um, and, and I, I think I'm sure you know this. Most talk radio stations in the United States are conservative. They try the, the liberal, um, what was it? What was the liberal network called? I forget. Um, they had a network of liberal stations that had died a horrible death, a quick, horrible death. Um, but most talk radio is conservative. Is it not? Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and there are several reasons for that. Uh, for one thing, I think, uh, talk radio with the conservative slant has done a much better job of engaging audiences. Uh, and also, I think the kind of people who listen to radio more generally now uh, are probably more uh, centrist or right-leaning kinds of people. Uh, demographically, I think men are more likely to listen to talk radio, for yep. example. Yep. Uh, they're more likely uh, to vote Republican than women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I think these are workaday people. Uh, in many cases, blue-collar people, uh, and I think those are folks uh, that are great listeners and very loyal to radio stations, and it has made sense in that regard uh, because I think, you know, if you can reach an audience, you can sell it to advertisers, and that's what I think, you know, most of these talk stations have done. You know, there, there are a few left-leaning, you know, t- uh, talk stations are more likely to be in California or places like New York City or New Jersey uh, but they generally uh, don't get the kinds of ratings that you would see, you know, from most conservative hosts. And I think one of the reasons is they don't engage their audiences very well. But I also think a lot of more liberal or progressive people are just not listening to radio. Uh, they're drifting off into podcasts or they're watching MSNBC uh, or or reading The Nation magazine or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Well, um the other thing is that uh, well, sixteen of these stations are fifty thousand watts, which means they have good reach even at night and everything, as far as AM radio goes. But um, they these stations include conservative talk show hosts, but many of them are also part of conservative radio talk networks, and that's where um, uh, his I think his influence could be felt if he started pulling his stations out of those networks. Because they are yeah, and big I, market yeah. stations. And I think that could happen. I mean, again, it wouldn't wouldn't be done right away because right. most of these syndication agreements are done for long periods of time. And so, I mean, if, you know, when Odyssey emerges from bankruptcy, which could take months, uh, and it appears that, you know, Soros's uh, financial corporation is going to be the largest shareholder in the eventual settlements of the bankruptcy hearings, uh, you know, they'll still have to deal with the other investors who might not all be in lockstep. But at a certain point, I think his influence would show up there. 
And I would think that that would be one thing on his mind. Because like I said, I don't think he's doing this as a philanthropist. No. And I think he wants to have an influence. And I mean, I, you know, part of that is just based on how we've seen him act uh, in uh, his uh, kind of progressive foundations, how we've seen him act in the political world. As you noted, he's gone around the country trying to support, in particular, progressive district attorneys uh, when they're up for election with the idea that we kind of change the way that we r- run our judicial system uh, and who gets charged. And uh, as, as you may or uh, your listeners may well know, uh, Soros is a big proponent of drug decriminalization. And that's why, one of the reasons in places like Los Angeles, you have a district attorney who's not interested in, you know, <clears throat> uh, criminalizing or uh, prosecuting uh, drug people. And now, I mean, I, and, and by the way, I want to make a distinction here between somebody who just has a little bit in their pocket or something is using privately versus the people who are marketing and yeah. pushing the stuff uh, on, on behalf of cartels and whatnot. But we know that uh, in Los Angeles, uh, the number of prosecutions has dropped considerably. And that's all part of, you know, the George Soros mentality. We decriminalize drugs. We put progressives in uh, key places. We influence uh, elections uh, and we believe in an open society uh, you know, and so we, we need we need to consider what that means when somebody who believes all those things takes over 220 radio stations. And I might just say one more thing real quickly. You know, Rupert Murdoch uh, of Fox right. uh, fame, he you know, owns Fox properties. Uh, he was an he was an Australian who got American citizenship, American citizenship in part so he could own U.S. broadcast properties because. There's a, a, a long-standing FCC rule that you have to be an American citizen to be able to own American broadcast properties. George Soros, as you may know, is a dual United States and citizen of Hungary at the same time. So he's already kind of approached that. But I remember the time when Rupert Murdoch was getting his U.S. citizenship and buying up Fox properties and wanting to own Fox television stations and whatnot. There was a huge outcry from the left community like, oh, we can't have this right-wing guy coming in here and owning media properties. Yeah. And so it cuts both ways. But Soros, actually, in, on the, the world scene, is probably a bigger player than even the Murdoch family. Oh, yeah. Um, now, I didn't know this, but Odyssey uh, already has a deal with uh, – C- I'm looking at this deal here. Uh, yeah, they have a deal with CBS Radio uh, to supply newscasts, and uh, to allow stations to simulcast CBS Evening News, 60 Minutes, and Face the Nation. So how quickly do you think we could see his influence there? Now, it would be, it actually sounds like a good idea to me for some stations to do that. Um, but, you know, it's CBS. So you know what you're well, going to get from that. My, my guess is Soros is probably generally sympathetic with CBS's journalistic and editorial practices. Uh, CBS is pretty much viewed as a left-leaning news outlet, so he's probably okay with that generally uh, as a programming practice. In some ways, it makes sense to look for those simulcasts because it's uh, uh, economic efficiency for sure mm-hmm. um, and fills time and on talk stations. And, you know, like the face of the nation on a Sunday morning, that's not going to be a game-breaker much. Radio people uh, are not big Sunday people. I mean, the, the radio world operates still largely on 
morning drive and evening drive, because that's when most people are in their cars. And a lot of people now still rely on radio when they're behind the wheel. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, right now, it's uh, it's 25 after 5 in in Pittsburgh, and um, and people are on the road coming home from work. And I, I think there's a there's a feeling out there among some that that radio isn't important anymore. I don't know. I, I think if you uh, right outside my door here, Jeff, is the uh, the Parkway West, which is the main artery from this side of town in, into and out of Pittsburgh at rush hour. And it's packed right now with cars. I, I don't know how many people are listening to me right now, but I, I think there are a lot more people listening to radio right now than are listening to podcasts. I, I, I still think that's the case. Sure, there's evidence to support that. And what's interesting is in even with the other competitions that have come in the audio world, whether it's podcasts or streaming services or whatever, radio has maintained a viability. And, in fact, there's some recent research from Nielsen in the last year or two uh, that radio listenership is coming back up. And one of the reasons is people are getting tired of streaming services. You know, if you've got you know, SoundCloud or Apple Music, and you're listening to the same old stuff all the time, at a certain point, kind of like, hey, you know, I, I want something more for my ears than just to listen to music or to the same old podcast. And so radio still has a vibrancy uh, and a relevance that I think people should recognize. And I think radio in the main uh, can still be a healthy medium uh, and could still be profitable across the board. But too many radio corporations, and Odyssey was one of those, got out ahead of itself and bought too many properties that they couldn't manage. And one of the problems is they delocalized them. The yep. radio stations that continue to do best continue to have at least some substantial local, hyper-local kinds of programming with local hosts and local news and that sort of local sports and that sort of thing. And the radio stations that have drifted and not been so successful in the last few years have been ones that have gone to all like syndicated program or computerized programming where there's nothing unique to that particular market uh, going out over the air. I have about two minutes left here, and I, I saw a story again today. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because this CNN apparently is going to have some. Um, well, they're going to they're going to they're they're planning to make some cuts, budget cuts, and they give us the reason ratings, obviously, but um, they also they also. Uh, there's some talk about, well, this could mean some hosts are gone. I, I have about a minute and a half left here with Jeff McCall of uh, DePaul University. Um, what I've asked you this before, probably. They're going to make cuts, and some people will go, how long can they keep the this um, the people like Tapper and and uh, and uh, what's his name? <laughs> I'm looking right at his face now. Well, they've got, they've yeah. got several that probably need to go. Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. And, I couldn't think of his name. And, yeah, and Wolf Blitzer. Yeah, they've been uh, there you know, forever, and they keep they, the ratings keep going in the toilet, and they keep putting the same people's faces on the air. Yeah, if they were a professional athlete, they would have all been cut from the roster a yeah. long time ago. Because at a certain point, regardless of what you think of their personalities or their history, you've got to produce results, and their ratings are really bad. And CNN is a classic case of how to mismanage a media property. Because there was a time when C CNN was respected and cnn had decent ratings but they've gone down the drain and they haven't done anything really to try to turn it around and uh there are reports circulating now with this uh, looming uh, budget cutback 
there are reports that Anderson Cooper is making $20 million a year, oh. and Wolf Blitzer's making $15 million a year, and Chris Wallace, who got launched from Fox, is making $8 million a year at CNN, and he's totally burned out and irrelevant by now. And I, I'm surprised that CNN uh, won't have to go very deep because CNN is a bust, their ratings are bad, uh, their revenues are on the decline, and their ideologically driven content has really turned off people across the country. And, uh, I, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how they try and turn it around. Twenty million for Anderson Cooper—that's obscene. Maybe that's that's just unbelievable. <laughs> I'm out of time, Jeff. Always good to have you on. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, that's Jeff McCall, professor of communications at DePaul University, and I'll be right back. So, would uh, you vote for any candidate who is in favor of banning gas-powered cars if uh, Joe Biden somehow managed to stay stay in this race? Uh, that's what you'll be doing if you vote for him in November. And there will be lots of money spent on ads between now and then to make sure that voters are aware of the major differences in the two campaigns. Kenny Stein is the vice president of policy at American Energy Alliance, and he joins us now. Kenny, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, a group called the uh, American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers uh, just announced that it's going to be starting a seven-figure uh, millions of dollars, uh, an ad campaign about this and making sure people are aware of what's going on here with what uh, the Biden administration is uh, planning to do. What do you think of all that? Well, it's important. I think the education campaign is is important because it's the kind of thing it's being done uh, through regulatory processes in Washington, D.C. The EPA and the Department of Transportation are issuing new regulations that are under the guise of uh, Fuel efficiency, the, the CAFE standards, if people are familiar with the, the terminology, corporate average fuel economy. And that's the fuel efficiency standards for vehicles that have been, been around for 50 years or so now. I think they started in the 70s. But what the Biden administration has been doing uh, in the last couple of years, and there's rule, some rules that they're finalizing here within the next few weeks, are to basically use those fuel, old fuel economy rules to try and force uh, people to only use electric vehicles, basically to uh, phase out by regulatory fiat uh, internal combustion engines. And it's something that not necessarily a lot of people are aware that's been going on in the background now for several years. Yeah, I saw a recent poll. It showed that 90%, 90% of people in Pennsylvania have either heard uh, nothing at all or very little about this uh, proposed ban so, um, again, that, that seems like a pretty good reason for some serious heavy advertising because uh, I think a lot of people would be shocked to find out how far along they are on this and how serious they are about it. Right. Well, and the other thing that this is, you thought of polling, we, we, the American Injury Alliance has done some of this polling too. Every time you ask people, uh, should the government decide what kind of car you can buy? The overwhelming majority think that's ridiculous. Even even people that like electric vehicles and own electric vehicles think you should have a choice in whether to purchase an electric vehicle or an internal combustion engine vehicle or, or a hybrid, you know, or or you know some other uh, vegetable fuel vehicle. <laughs> you know, that's the part of being American is that you have a choice in, in how you get around, and that's what these rulemakings are attempting to do is eliminate that choice because. That you, you know, over the years we've seen this. The the federal government and state governments, especially California, have um, they've tried to subsidize electric vehicles. 
Uh, California has tried to mandate electric vehicles. They've tried to, you know, they've tried every carrot that they've tried, uh, attempted. And a lot of people just, electric vehicles, they don't think work for them. They, they live in rural areas or they're concerned about char- charging times. You know, there's lots of hesitation. And people just aren't buying electric vehicles at the pace that, um, the, that our regulatory overlords want them to. So now they've started, they've got to break out the stick and start banning things and forcing people to change over. Yeah, and again, we're, we're, we're in a, uh, we're in a campaign, an election year. Um, and you would think that the Democrats want issues that are going to get them votes and not do the opposite. Um, how, how could it be that, I mean, what, what would do you think would lead them to believe that this is an issue they can win on at this point? Or don't they, they must not care. I, I, it just makes, it makes no sense as a political issue when you see the yeah. polls. <laughs> well, so this is, this is why they're doing it through regulatory processes. You don't, you know, there aren't, the Democrats in Congress aren't out trying to pass a law to ban it because then everyone knows who did it. Then it's, everyone's talking about it. But they're doing it through regulatory processes in the background. And it's also the, the ban is supposed to fully go into effect by 2035. So, you know, it's kind of there's the lead time that uh, which they have to do for to allow car makers like it's, it's, to not destroy the you know automotive industry. Right. But they're doing it with a longer lead time through these regulatory processes that people aren't paying attention to. And I, the game is really here is that the their the their pay, their voters, the the very environmental, the, the environmental left wing. They are paying attention to this stuff, and so they see the administration doing these things, and that's getting them revved up for the election. And but they're hoping that on the flip side, that because this is done being done regulatorily in the background, that the average voter won't notice it uh, during the election campaign. So they're they're hoping to have their cake and eat it too, encourage their most fervent supporters while hiding it from the more general, the you know the middle that really decides these elections. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned that you've done some polling. I'm wondering, does the polling show that 2035, uh, that I'm going to be really old by then? Uh, and, <laughs> and a lot of people who, or who look at 2035 are going to say, okay, well, you know, I'm either going to be retired, I'll be dead. That's, that's still, that's 11 years from now. That's a long time. But what about young people who tend to vote, uh, uh, who tend to be more liberal? And who have been brainwashed for the last uh, who knows how many years of their lives in uh, the uh, climate hysteria? How many of them do you think would answer yes if asked? Um, would they would they think it's okay to ban gas powered cars? Because I, I think it would be a lot higher than the average than anybody over the age of thirty, for example. Well, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know if I've seen polling broken down into age demographics like that but it's it's pretty it's pretty consistent that in most polling you see even that even people who are open to purchasing an electric vehicle the mandating of electric vehicles is generally unpopular among among all even even among younger voters this because because frankly government mandates in general just don't poll very well yeah Um, Yeah. but the thing the thing is the 2035 is definitely it is partly a psychological thing because yes we all think of that as very far off in the future even though it's really at this point only a little more than 10 years but the the problem is is this is a regulatory ratchet it's not like you can have everything's fine for 10 years and then suddenly there's no more internal combustion in your cars the the changeover starts today the car makers have to start 
uh, raising, they have to start raising prices or phasing out their internal combustion engines to subsidize the development of new electric vehicles. The, over time, the, the only vehicles that are available are going to be electric vehicles. So overall prices of new vehicles is going to continue to rise over time. So it's every year you're going to see this. It's basically, it's going to be, uh, effectively inflation in the motor vehicles market over the next 10 years. And again, this part of why they're doing this by regulation is to try and hide that and they can, you know, every year, if you know, if Biden wins re-election, I'm sure he'll spend the next four years complaining about car manufacturers raising prices and gouging customers. Yep, but yep. it's all being done to comply with the regulations that this administration is putting into place. And you would think that Congress should have something to say about this. <laughs> right, right. You think you think a major reordering of the American motor vehicles market is something that <laughs> Congress should direct, not for the not some bureaucrats to make up in the background. But you know, there's. There are members of individual members of Congress who have introduced legislation that would uh, that would one to prevent this from happening at all. There's also something called the Congressional Review Act, which is um, where Congress can vote to disapprove of a regulation that comes out. The problem is with that with either of those routes, one has to pass both the House and the Senate, um, which is possible but difficult. But then the president, who ha- has to sign off on any law to stop that. And, of course, the president is the one doing these regulations in the first place. Right. Well, is it becoming uh, harder for the average person to find an affordable car? Well, I, I certainly would think so. Actually, when every time you look at the inflation statistics, one of the biggest areas of inflation is both new and used motor vehicles. Like That, it, that has been one of the major inflationary uh, impacts that we've seen in the last several years. And, it's again, it's there's... These automakers, you, you regularly see the headlines in the last that you've seen in the last year. They're losing billions of dollars trying to develop and sell these electric vehicles. The only company that seems to be able to make money selling electric vehicles is Tesla, Ford, GM. Nobody makes money on these things. So, what do these companies have to do? They don't. They don't just lose money. They have to raise the prices of their existing cars, of internal combustion cars. So, that's what I mean. If you look at car prices. Unlike every other major appliance, you know, in the past 30, 40 years, televisions have gotten cheaper. Home appliances have gotten cheaper. Your dishwasher, everything, all these appliances, large appliances have gotten cheaper over time, except for vehicles. They continue to get more expensive. And that is the effect of regulation. That is, that is purely a regulatory, uh, regulatory mandates, efficiency mandates, and now electric vehicle mandates. There have been uh, major layoffs by the car companies, too. Any reason to believe that's not going to continue? Well, it, this this is actually it's an open question. The, I know that there, the United Auto Workers are concerned. The, the the main union are concerned about this transition to electric vehicles because the manufacturing process for electric vehicles seems to require fewer workers. So I, there are definitely folks. There are definitely workers in the auto industry that are skeptical of this this. Uh, Force, attempt to force the transition to electric vehicles. And then you also have the problem of um, where uh, the major, the main, the biggest, most expensive component in an electric vehicle is the battery itself that holds the charge. And the minerals uh, that, are, that go into those batteries come from outside the United States. There are supply chains that are controlled by China and Chinese companies. And they're manufactured by Chinese companies or South Korean companies. These are not the battery manufacturing and the battery processing, that doesn't happen in the United States. So the, 
these aren't these we're not we're not boosting an american industry let's put it that way by mandating electric vehicles yeah now you mentioned tesla i saw that uh byd that's a chinese a really big chinese ev uh maker i just saw this uh when i was getting ready to have you on the show today uh sold 526 fully electric vehicles in the last three months of 2023 Tesla only sold 484,000. That's the first time that someone has outsold Tesla. What's the significance of that? Well, this is this is the big the big thing that everyone likes to point to Tesla as as you know the success of you know EV sales. The thing is is that what Tesla sells is a luxury vehicle. So there's only so many people that want uh, a luxury electric vehicle. The the mass market is the, the is what the average person buys. People aren't going to spend eighty a hundred thousand dollars on a vehicle. Um, so where there, Tesla has yet to really prove that they can sell a lot of vehicles to the mass market, and the other car manufacturers that are attempting to, have, you know, Ford has lost billions of dollars, GM has lost billions of dollars. There there has not been any success uh, at that sort of mass market because they can't make them affordable enough. And that's where a company like BYD comes in because they have China has lower labor standards and lower environmental standards. They can build electric vehicles a lot more cheaply than you can build in the United States. So again, like I was saying, the mandating electric vehicles is really is really promoting a non-American uh, dominated industry. We're talking to Kenny Stein. He's the vice president of policy at American Energy Alliance. Um, so if, if the I'm just wondering. If you're the if you're the CEO of one of the major car companies in the United States, in order to to um, not really push back hard on these mandates, do you almost have to be um, a believer in the climate hysteria? Because because not only because you'd have to believe it just in order to have this make sense, but because you uh you know you you're not, you don't want to be canceled you're not you 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 don't want to have people say you're a bad person because you're not going along with the climate change insanity yeah well i'm sure i'm sure there's an element to that you know you, you if your friends all think something you don't want to be the odd man out and yeah. in ceo boardrooms in the united states there's there's definitely a prevailing opinion about that sort of stuff but i think it's i think it's a baser issue it's i think that these uh, there's a lot, the federal government is waiving a lot of money, a lot of subsidies in front of these automakers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the big, one of the largest subsidies in the, in the, in the title was the Inflation Reduction Act, but it was really the Climate Subsidy Act. Um, one of the biz, big, biggest subsidies in that, uh, law that was passed a couple of years ago is subsidies for battery manufacturing. So all these automakers were like, oh my goodness, the, the, Federal government's going to offer us tens of billions of dollars to manufacture things that we need to manufacture anyway. Let's let's get on this gravy train. So I think a big part of it is these, these automakers they they want they want to suck up the federal subsidies. They want the money, so they have to go along with some of this silly stuff. Now you've seen them in again in the last year, as I mentioned earlier. Little by little, there's news trickling out about how you know Ford lost three trillion dollars or three billion dollars or something like that last year on their electric vehicles. That Chrysler has lost money on every single EV they've sold. You know, some of that information is starting to trickle out. But the automakers themselves, they they really they see the the federal dollar signs in front of them, and they want to grasp that money. And then going back to the, the point about regulation. 
the national automakers, the national auto market is heavily, heavily regulated. The federal government has its fingers deep inside the the national auto, auto vehicle market. So if you if they they take a risk, if they try to stand up to the federal government, that they start penalizing them, they start going after them, they start, you know, start the EPA starts doing lots of enforcement investigations of, of, on their vehicles. You know, there's a lot of way, regulatory ways that the federal government can harm automakers. And, you know, that hits the bottom line. And I mean, ultimately, you know, it's a bit of it's a bit of a Stockholm situation, Stockholm syndrome situation with the automakers is that their industry is so heavily regulated, they can't really afford to piss off the the bureaucrats in power. Yeah, I have about uh, a little less than a minute left with Kenny Stein, Vice President of Policy at American Energy Alliance. Kenny, uh, I'm not a, as, I, as I sit here right now, I am not aware of anyone I know personally who owns an electric vehicle. Does that make me a strange person? Uh, it, uh, it just means that you live in most of the country. You know, there's there there's there's certain states and especially certain cities where uh, they've gotten pretty prevalent. You know, in the D.C. area where I live, you can see quite a few Teslas. Not many other electric vehicles, but but no, in the in the larger America, you know, the last year there was a record market share for electric vehicles, and it was it was about seven percent, I think, eight percent of new vehicle sales. So it's still it's a very small niche product, which is all the more crazy that they're talking about mandating it uh, within 10 years. Typical government stupidity. Thank you, uh, Kenny. I appreciate you coming on the show. Hope to talk again. Yep, thank you. Okay, that's Kenny Stein, VP of Policy at American Energy Alliance. I'll be right back. I'm going to finish the week off with a uh, kind of a personal story. Uh, I think you'll be able to relate to it. Well, I, I, I think guys especially will be able to relate to it. Um, they buried Tommy Pusateri, uh today, and I went to the funeral home last night. And you probably, well, there's a chance you heard of Tommy, but he, he wasn't famous. But he uh, he and I were uh, classmates at, at a Catholic high school, South Hills Catholic, back in the 60s. And... Um, and it just got me to thinking about when men were men, which is something I say a lot. Of, a lot. And Tommy Pusateri was a guy who represented that. And I, it, he was a, a great guy, a, a, an amazing kid, five seven, one hundred and forty five pounds, a running back. And one of the coaches uh, who was a longtime coach at South Hills Catholic, Jim Palmer, said that he was the best player ever to come through there, pound for pound. And there are guys who have come through there to go on to the NFL, major colleges in the NFL. Uh, but uh, And I was saying this to someone before I went to the funeral home last night, which, by the way, was packed, packed with people. I, I said, if you asked any of the guys who show up at Tommy's uh, viewing tonight, uh, if they would ever, if they wish they could do it over again, and if they could do it over again, they would go to a school with girls, every one of them would say no. Because there's something special about going to school with with guys, and there's a bond. And if you went to Central Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. But Tommy Pusateri was uh, one of those guys. We we were it was a requirement that we wear a coat and tie. And I used to have one tie that I would hang in my locker, and I would put it on. Didn't matter what sport coat I wore that day. Tommy would come in with the with a beautiful camel blazer and a burgundy tie with a burgundy hanky in his pocket. This is when he was 15 years old. And uh, and he was a tough kid, tough, tough guy. Might have been the toughest kid in the class at five seven hundred and forty five. Nobody messed with him, 
And everybody who went there last night to the viewing, it just it brought back memories of when men were men. And Tommy Pusateri, he was a great, great, um, a great advertisement for when men were men. And uh, he went too soon. But Tommy Pusateri, rest easy, my man. I'll talk to you Monday. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.